Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature and the human heart. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. It was obvious that there was this human supremacist thing lurking in the word nature. And anthropologists have pointed out that this is a concept specific to Western cultures. So you go to the Amazon and ask people there how they say everything that is not human. They say, no, we think plants and animals are people like us. We don't have this idea, everything that is not human. In this program, we drop in on a provocative conversation about the concept of intelligence in nature and how language itself can encode our worldviews. Bioneer senior producer J.P. Alpigny talks with anthropologist Jeremy Narby, author of many books, including Intelligence in Nature and Inquiry into Knowledge. Narby suggests that today you'd be hard-pressed to find a scientist who disputes intelligence in nature. But what is intelligence? And what if how we talk about it still signals a human supremacist bias? I'm Neil Harvey. This is Nature's Intelligence, coming down from the pedestal. These days, scientists are starting to talk like shamans, and shamans are starting to talk like scientists. So says anthropologist and author Jeremy Narby. And he says, we need to talk about talking because words matter. The very language and words we use reveal the topography and limits of our worldview, including Western culture's adamant centuries-long but now increasingly discredited assumption that intelligence is restricted only to human beings. We join a free-range dialogue between Jeremy Narby and J.P. Alpigny at a Bioneers conference. One of your big themes has been your insistence on the fact that the words we use and the language we express ourselves in are really determinant in not just our attitude towards the natural world, but how we behave. Maybe we should talk a little bit about that, about why you think that's so important. And, you know, a, a lot of your life, one of your big intellectual challenges have been this idea of reconciling indigenous wisdom and ways of knowing with the Western scientific approaches, mm -hmm. something that's very difficult to reconcile, but that's been your life's work. And you've often used the term being bicognitive. Mm -hmm. Now you're sort of talking about being plurilingual. Mm -hmm. So maybe let's explore that a bit. Okay. Well, obviously, it's complicated to talk about the limits of a language in that language, but that also makes it interesting. For me, it started to become clear when I wrote Intelligence in Nature. So English is my mother tongue. I also speak French. I know that when you go from one language to another, things don't necessarily translate. So I think that experience of having grown up with several languages and then Spanish and then a bit of German, I'm not bragging. Actually, I feel my head's relatively small. I know some people can speak a whole bunch of languages. But anyway, as I was writing Intelligence in Nature, I still 
had the reflex of most people of just to think that the words that are in our mother tongue are normal. They're, you know, so intelligence. Well, everybody knows what intelligence is, or we think we do, or, okay, you can look in the dictionary and there's a definition. And all right, so well, my book is going to be about intelligence in nature. But the more I started looking into the subject, the problem with the word emerged fairly quickly. So intelligence is a word that comes from the Latin, interlegere, to choose between. So it's in Western tongues. And if you look in the dictionary, the definition of the word is often in exclusively human terms, which means that it can't really be applied to other species if we're strict with words. So then you think, well, wait a second, how come intelligence is in exclusively human terms? Well, you look into it and you realize that there's this thing in Western cultures, a human exclusivity, the, this whole idea that humans have things that the others don't, and there's like a kind of a long shopping list that Western thinkers have tended, especially modern Western thinkers, to line up as being what makes us above all other species. And you think, but hold on, what is this above other species business? I mean, we're all, we're mammals after all. So where is the above? Well, we say there's a whole list that of things that humans do and that other species don't do. And intelligence is one of them, that over the, the centuries, Western thinkers have said humans have intelligence and the others have instinct. Well, or... but those goalposts have moved quite a bit, right? Because a lot of recent research on animal, I mean, when right. you wrote your book, it was early, but now there's been a right. lot, a lot to, yeah. But when a Japanese researcher showed that a slime mold could solve a maze and used the word intelligence in Nature magazine in 2002, all the Western commentators said, wait, this you can't use the word intelligence for a single cell of slime. I remember he said that if he used the word cleverness, they were better. Uh, smart. Smart. Yeah, smart. smart. So it was obvious that there was this human supremacist thing lurking in the word intelligence. Okay. And then I found that it was also lurking in the word nature so that if you look in the dictionary, nature is defined as the phenomenon of the physical world, plants, animals, and the landscape as opposed to humans and human creations. This is the Oxford English Dictionary definition of the word, as opposed to humans and human creations. Nature is everything that is not human. And anthropologists have pointed out that this is a concept specific to Western cultures. So you go to the Amazon and ask people there how they say everything that is not human. They say, no, we think plants and animals are people like us. Mm -hmm. We don't have this idea, everything that is not human. So then you think, okay, no, so let's wind the tape back. So English is my mother tongue. Uh, nature, we know I like nature. Nature's plants and animals, okay, but it means everything that is not human. Yeah, it's kind of a weird concept. I thought that nature was a natural concept. I thought nature existed. I like nature. I'm a friend of nature. But actually, the, the concept is this weird concept. That, and so and that puts what do you think about how to transcend uh, to to deal with that because as you were saying the only languages we have are the ones that that we are raised with so well, how to, is there any escape yeah there's escape like for example i tend to not use the word nature i tend to say plants and animals or the living world 
or uh, all living organisms, or you know, the biosphere, or the web of life, or the web of life. There's a whole all, all kinds of ways of talking, but you know that. So then, both intelligence and nature are centered on humans, but in opposed ways. In fact, intelligence and nature, if you're strict with words, is a contradiction in terms because intelligence excludes non-humans, and nature excludes humans. Mm. But that just shows that our categories or our concepts have these blind angles. So I think this is interesting, but it means that if we want to move forward with understanding what we would call intelligence in nature, or uh, let's just say the uh, full capacities of all living organisms, if we want to understand that, doing away with concepts that put a difference between us and the other species seems like a good move. In other words, okay, if intelligence is problematic because it's irremediably a human exclusivity, forget about it. We need a new concept. If nature is problematic because it also excludes humans and puts a difference between us and, and other species, then we don't need it. We can use alternatives. There is a... a, a a sort of more underground philosophical tradition in the West of panpsychism, this idea that consciousness permeates everything mm -hmm. in the universe, even inanimate, mm -hmm. what we think of as inanimate, which is probably another problematic mm -hmm. word. So, but, Still, but you yeah. note that the, the, let's call it the capitalist world that has been established, this sort of huge industry, market-driven, worldwide distribution, containers, plastic objects made all over the place, uh, that world is a world that has considered plants and animals as objects, mm -hmm. not as subjects. So there's mm -hmm. humans on one hand, they're the subjects, they're the consumers, and all the rest are objects. We can wrap them in plastic and sell them. Mm -hmm. And that's what's going on. So this view that humans are somehow above all the rest and can do with all the rest what they want is the world we live in. For over 30 years, Jeremy Narby has worked with the Swiss-based nonprofit Nouvelle Planète, supporting indigenous Amazonian initiatives in Peru for land conservation and cultural preservation. Living and working with tribes, including the Ashaninka, he participated in their ceremonial use of ayahuasca, a psychedelic plant medicine central to their medical and spiritual practices. These powerful experiences, ignited in him a desire to seek to build bridges between shamanic and scientific worldviews. So one thing that will certainly interest probably a certain subset of, of listeners is um, because you've written about ayahuasca and ayahuasca experiences had a big influence on shaping your world vision when you were living with Yashaninka in your younger days, how do you think the use of you know, sacred plants and ayahuasca in particular and other sacred plants might influence that type of, you know, that linguistic struggle mm. or is it something that's beyond, um, does one access states that are beyond language or apart from language or what do you, what do you think the relationship is? Well, I, I can talk uh, on the basis of personal experience. For me, it's been clear that ayahuasca has kind of heightened or enhanced my attention to words, how one pronounces them, the choice of words, also the sound of one's voice, that what comes out of one's mouth counts and participates in the creation of the world. So that may sound a little bit, I don't know what, but yeah, words matter. 
what you say matters. And if you can say things clearly and with a pure heart, it has a ring that people can hear. And so you really can transmit, well, knowledge or these things through how you speak. Yeah, that is a kind of an ayahuasca insight. Language almost seems more concrete in that state of mind, or breath, certainly. And actually, in the ayahuasca experience, people sing spontaneously. And, and as they sing, they experience the, the power of melody in their voice. Of uh, that, It's really this beautiful thing that we can make these sounds with our voice and add meaning and melody to them. It's such a precious and beautiful thing that you don't want to spend your day cussing and, and having garbage coming out of your mouth. Do you think that those early ayahuasca experiences, you described them as having really changed your worldview, mm -hmm. um, do you, how does that apply to this issue of language? Do you think the seeds of your questioning of Western language began then, or do you think it's something else in your yeah. anthropological training that triggered that or some combination no, well, of the two? Well, it's true that the ayahuasca made me think about language and how you say things, and then how when you say things in one language, it's not the same as the other, and, and so forth. And then I started writing the, the cosmic serpent and trying to think about things and realize that actually it's like two different systems of logic here. It's not just that we're in English on the one hand and in Ashaninka on the other hand. It's we're in Western science on the one hand and in a kind of a shamanic epistemology uh, on the other. And it's kind of like oil and vinegar and making sense of one from the other is difficult. And then I started seeing it was towards the end of writing The Cosmic Serpent that I understood that it was kind of like bilingualism mm -hmm. and that you could look at the world from the point of view of science and so the molecules that it contains and so what does science tell us about ayahuasca and the brain and so on and so forth. And then you could look at the same scene from the point of view of shamanic knowledge and they'd be fairly complementary. The Cosmic Serpent was all about that, how you could reunite these two different gazes that had been separated. And actually, they're surprisingly coherent and agree on many fundamental levels about the nature of nature. So, hmm, it, it was like the, the metaphor I had, it was like a reverse camera angle. My main camera angle is Western science, but we could see the replay uh, from a reverse angle. And you could look at any question, like, you know, how does a DNA molecule function? Well, seen from the shamanic side, uh, uh, the, there must be some importance of vibration, melody. Uh, if, if what the shamans say is true about the essences that animate living beings, then vibration must be part of what makes the molecule tick. Well, uh, okay, so that's what you can get from the reverse angle. It may not, these are ideas for future research, for example. And so then I understood that what was at stake or what could then happen if you could line up science and shamanic knowledge, then it would be a question of learning to go back and forth like a bilingual person. And as somebody who's had experience learning languages, other languages, to the point of more or less becoming bilingual, there's a period when you learn the second language where you cease to speak your mother tongue 
as well as you used mm. to, yet you don't speak the second language fluently yet either. So you're in this kind of no person's land. Uh, 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 so you speak two languages poorly. <laughs> and it, what it takes is a lot of going back and forth. Uh -huh. and, and that's how you become bilingual, by going back and forth a lot. So the idea was that this was like bicognitivism. So it's not two languages, but two systems of knowledge. And you When we return, Jeremy Narby and J.P. Alpigny survey the erosion of the heretofore seemingly unbreachable dichotomies between scientific and shamanic ways of seeing the world. They suggest it might behoove us to try to come down from our imagined pedestal to be able to see ourselves as a part of nature rather than apart from it. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. You can visit Bioneers.org to subscribe to our newsletters and podcasts, check out deep dives on the topics that matter to you most, and learn about our events. That's Bioneers.org. Today, science has established beyond dispute human beings' literal kinship with all other plant and animal species. Half the genes of a banana have exact equivalents in the human genome. Chimpanzees, bonobos, and humans share close to 99% identity in their genomes. There are genes common to both humans and bacteria. In other words, we're family. At the same time, a growing body of research has convincingly demonstrated that intelligent behaviors and capacities are widely distributed throughout nature. Pigeons have a better memory for paintings than college students do. Sheep have a better memory for human faces than people do. The list goes on and on. Yet how does the illusion that we humans are the only intelligent species persist so tenaciously? Is it part of a Russian doll of false dichotomies that mistakenly separate humans from nature? Might our language itself be trapping us into faulty worldviews? Let's drop back into the mystery with Jeremy Narby and J.P. Alpigny, talking about talking. There's that good old dichotomy where you have matter on one hand and then spirit on the other. And that's what we then learn looking at this is that it's not that Ashaninka people don't do dichotomies. They have a dichotomy between visible and invisible in that word maninkari. It's that their dichotomies are a lot less uh, watertight than Western ones. That's what characterizes Western thinking. It's not only that it's dualist and it makes dichotomies, but that the categories are so watertight. So, so you, you think fluidity is a, a key aspect of the yeah, uh, indigenous worldview that, that doesn't that this we is, lack in Western language. This has been commented on by different anthropologists mm -hmm. and so on, is that there is a, a increased permeability in the categories in indigenous traditions worldwide, really. 
You can uh, think of it as the uh, yin-yang symbol, where you have not only white and black surrounding each other, but a little bit of black in the white and a little bit of white in the black. Well, that's, um, that's the dialectic, where you get something else that results from the two forces. There's a kind of a synthesis or a interpenetration. Or but it comes from categories being less right. Uh, right. watertight. Right. So what's also interesting about thinking about other cultures and about the limits of our vocabulary to try to understand those uh, other cultures is that we think we're trying to understand the others, but at some point we're also looking in the mirror and understanding ourselves. So like, you know, by trying to f understand Amazonian reality in English, I've learned a lot about the limits of English and of Western thought. And that, so it, by trying to understand Amazonian logic, I realized the extent to which my Western logic is filled with this tendency to dichotomize, you know, mind, body. I used to think I have a body. I used to think I know what a body is, but actually, the body is the, the result of uh, an opposition between mind and body. You go to Ashaninka people, of course they recognize that you have a hand, an arm, they have a word for knee, foot, leg, and so on. They don't have a word for body. They don't have a word for mind either. They don't make a separation between mind and body. And when you ask them to say body, they say all my skin standing. So, <laughs> so that it takes, so they actually, their word is, it's more like there's a skin capsule. Hmm. Uh, so that's their view of the world. And then what we would call mind is that with which we know it's the same word as heart. Hmm. So then I go back to body and mind. I think that, uh, well, first of all, body is a pretty strange concept because it, it is this part of this whole thing of me that is not my mind. And then you think, wait a second, but this idea that there's a mind that is entirely separate from the body. Well, there also is the, the Buddhist tradition which tells you that you don't have a body or a mind as you think of them, mm -hmm. and that your body, in fact, is looks distinct, but in fact, it's interacting with the environment. Molecules are leaving and coming, and there is no clear boundary. And in the same way, your mind was deeply influenced by your education, your school, and it's permeable. So there are other traditions that question this. But also the other thing is well, that... Uh, yeah. Like I'd like to make clear that I yeah. don't doubt that I'm an organism. Right. I, I actually do like uh, my whole physical setup. I'm, I'm not complaining. And if you stub your toe, you... you it hurts. It hurts, yeah. Um, but uh, I think that getting away from seeing it as being a, a sort of a body on the one hand and a mind on the other is what I want to do because I, I want to understand myself. And I, I think that like calling it body is, is, is like turning it into an object a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, why do that? Yeah, it's but a, I mean, there is no complete way out because we are stuck with language to some degree, right? So every effort we make in this will be partial, don't you think? Well, like, you know, I could say, I, I think of myself as a pulsating organism, okay, or a wet organism. All right, I do try to think of myself that way. We could do, so it recognizes the physicality mm. and body, which is this kind of weird concept resulting from a pretty watertight dichotomy, we don't need it. So, or, Jeremy, would, are you thinking of writing a new dictionary of uh, the appropriate or, terms to, to describe avoid. the human condition <laughs> and which words to avoid and, and new ways to describe ourselves? You know, I th it's more like it'd be a guide to how to think ourselves out of this mess.
Uh-huh. You know, and uh, it's true. I think that w- and liberation through n- n- nomenclature, or you know, uh, yeah, kind of. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, obviously, one would want to avoid word police, absolutely. But just that becoming aware that I don't think that we can really remove ourselves from the pedestal we've put ourselves on relative to all the other species if we continue using the word nature, hmm. because it's a pedestal word. So there are pedestal words. And uh, avoiding them is part of coming down from the pedestal. It's as simple as that. The linguistic smashing of the pedestal. Or, or just the coming down from. Uh, no smashing. No smashing. Just oh, okay. get down from the, the pedestal. <laughs> so, Jeremy, the idea of your work uh, having come at a time when very few people were open to this idea of intelligent in nature. Forgive the use of those two terms, but it was the title of your book. Right. <laughs> um, um, have you seen progress in terms of the mainstream scientific establishment, in terms of catching up with the ideas that you expressed in, in that book? And do you see hope there, or do you think it's just partial penetration and much more needs to be done? Yeah, actually, the the funny thing was that uh, obviously my experience is a specific. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's to the quirk of what I lived. But the the quirk of what I lived was publishing Intelligence in Nature in two thousand and five. The book was mainly ignored, like it was non-reviewed and so on. Then, in the months that followed, and then the years that followed, the examples of Intelligence in Nature reported by scientists kept on cropping up new ones like some have said there's been a revolution in vegetal biology since 2005 i mean the the timing was almost perfect not for book sales because the book didn't sell but it's like all that science has produced since then has been an enormous confirmation of the surprising capacities of plants of unicellulars of fungi of trees and networks of trees and interspecies communications and at this point there's no articles on stupidity in nature <laughs> and thousands of articles and bits of research on these surprising capacities of all kinds of species including communication learning remembering perceiving even plants they perceive they smell they hear it's just been demonstrated that plants can hear you know the sound of water and so on so there's all this research that has unfolded in the last decade yeah clearly it's been shifting and it's funny how it happens because for so long the subject of the intelligence of plants and so forth this is almost like a a taboo subject well hippie it sounded like hippie nonsense right yeah but now it's like everybody knows that plants are intelligent so i'm really happy It's, it's never occurred to me to have been so right so fast these things usually take longer now there's i don't think there's any argument all plants and animals are objects in the eye of the law, except some are starting to receive personhood, except person is another one of these human-centered concepts. The the first definition of the word, if you look in the dictionary, is a, a human being regarded as an individual. So by definition, this is what critics uh, say, you can't grant personhood to other species because it's, it doesn't make sense. Although uh, French is a weird one because it's person and no one. Yeah, and and the etymology person in the Greek is refers to a mask, right? And a mask is can apply to anybody. In other words, person is a one of these complicated 
concepts and it's probably going to get on the list of uh, concepts that need to be avoided if in you, your in your linguistic uh, you, yeah, dictionary getting your... down from the pedestal <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have to drop that one too <laughs> I think we just came up with uh, you know your next writing project you know? <laughs> the list yeah Jeremy Narby and JP Alpini nature's intelligence coming down from the pedestal Executive producer is Kenny Ausubel, written by Kenny Ausubel. Senior producer and station relations, Stephanie Welch. Program engineer and music supervisor, Emily Harris. Host and consulting producer, Neil Harvey. Producer, Teo Grossman. Production assistants, Monica Lopez. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. This is program number 256.